Welcome to Rights Up Right Now, a mini episode of the Rights Up podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Kira Allman, and today I'm talking to Carol Sanger, professor of law at Columbia University in New York, about abortion and reproductive rights in the United States. In 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in a landmark case on abortion, Roe v. Wade. The decision said that access to abortion in the United States was protected by the right to privacy, which is guaranteed by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Before Roe, individual states varied widely in their treatment of abortion in the law. In some states, terminating pregnancy was a legal medical procedure. In others, it was a criminal offense. In effect, the federal government told the states in Roe v. Wade that abortion was legal in the entire country, but debates about the legality and morality of abortion did not go away. There have been several other Supreme Court cases related to abortion since then, and terminating pregnancy remains a highly politicized issue in the U.S., so much so that it often features in political party platforms. State legislatures regularly attempt to enact restrictions that would make abortion all but illegal. In this last U.S. presidential election, Republican candidate Donald Trump selected a prominent opponent of abortion protections, Mike Pence, as his running mate, thereby putting reproductive rights center stage in the campaign. With now President Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence in office, there are a lot of questions about what actions this administration might take with regard to reproductive rights and access to abortion. So in this episode, I'm talking to Carol Sanger, a professor of law at Columbia University and an expert in family and reproductive law, who has just written a book all about abortion and will hopefully give us some insights into what we might be able to expect here. Welcome to Rights Up, Carol. Uh, it's really a pleasure to speak with you. Just so our listeners know, I'm speaking to Carol on the phone here, so it will sound a lot like, well, a lot like she's on the phone. So, Carol, why write a book about abortion now in 2017? I started thinking about writing the book after Obama was elected president in, in 2008, where that is when I really began thinking about taking abortion seriously as a subject I wanted to invest in. And I've been thinking about it um, from my whole you know, academic career as part of family law, but until Obama was elected, there was always this um, threatening cloud overhead that it, the right, the the fundamental right, could be could be um, challenged in a serious way. And so I I felt a great calm after the 2008 election, and I began turning my attention to aspects of abortion law and abortion practice as a sort of cultural practice in the U.S. And so I started about five years ago and was able to make an argument that I've been long thinking about, about the complex relation between abortion regulation and law and what effect that has on women and how we have cultural practices as well as legal as legal rules. And so I was looking at the intersection of those two things. But um, while when I began the work, I was in a state of calm, since then we've had the November... 2016 election, and so things look uh, very um, gloomy, and the cloud has definitely returned with a real um, 
energy behind it from the Trump-Pence administration. What is President Trump's record on reproductive rights? Do we know much about that? Well, that is a wonderful question because, in fact, Trump doesn't have a record. If by record we mean what positions has he taken in his official capacity, because Trump has never had an official capacity uh, until now, his 70th year. He's been a private citizen. And we know that as a private citizen, he has previously been pro-choice and contributed money um, to pro-choice candidates, including Hillary Clinton. So that, so that talking about his record, we're talking about a very short-lived record, one that basically began in the spring of 2016 during the campaign, as he sorted out how to construct the base of voters that he wanted, which is a kind of conservative, very conservative group for whom abortion is one of the key issues of concern. But in terms of his record, there's really no record. Um, what he has done, though, is to pick to choose um, uh, former governor of Indiana Mike Pence as his vice president, and Pence has one of the most aggressive records as a state governor on uh, reproductive rights, and has tried to cut them back in Indiana at every pass, and has been uh, fairly successful because he, as the executive of Indiana, has also had. An, um, a a pro-life legislature. Okay, so this administration has only been in office for a few months, but have we already seen an erosion of reproductive rights or a movement in that direction? Yes, we've seen both an erosion and movement toward Mm -hmm. more erosion. And so this is one of the first things President Trump did upon taking office was to reverse the Mexico City policy, which was to say that the U.S. would no longer give foreign aid to any organizations who promote or provide abortion services. And this is something that traditionally presidents do on their first or second day in office, depending on whether they're Republican or Democrat, they they flip that policy. So that that is, I would say, it's not, and it's not purely symbolic, that serious foreign aid going to organizations like Planned Parenthood, for whom many women rely, not for their abortions, but for birth control, for cancer screenings, for contraception. So that that was a shame. Um, The domestic version of that is this movement to defund Planned Parenthood. And as we're speaking, that's on hold simply because other things have come up. But but that will be, there's a very big push to defund Planned Parenthood. There was also the move to um, uh, repeal Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and with it would come the contraceptive mandate, and we'll see where that goes. Um, there's also the appointment of Judge Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, um, a very conservative jurist, and that's another piece of this larger repopulating of government with. Um, people who hold views consistent with pro-life. So, so we have the judiciary, we have action um, in, in defunding Planned Parenthood, and then there's another thing we have that's really new, which is Vice President Pence is the vice president. That's, you know, a powerful office. And he has thrown his weight behind pro-life activities, um, such as going to the Right to Life March. And what this has done is really embolden the states 
to say, let's go for it. Let's enact every kind of regulation we can think of to limit abortion in our state, whether or not it's constitutional. Such things as, most recently, the requirement in Texas and in Ohio and in a number of states that women who who terminate pregnancies are required to bury or cremate the fetal remains. And that's a that's a cruel one in many ways. That's um that gives you the flavor of what kind of laws are being passed now. Where does the right to an abortion come from? And related to that, what is the relationship between the states and the federal government on this issue? This is what led to Roe v. Wade, the argument that deciding whether or not to have a child is such a deeply, deeply personal decision about the shape of your entire life that it is a matter of um, two constitutional principles. One is liberty. If you don't have the right to control your body in this way, you really, the state is depriving you of an important aspect of your autonomy. Mm. And the other is a matter of privacy, which is where many of our family decisions are lodged. The right to marry, um, the right to use contraception. These were, um, as a matter of Supreme Court law, developed under the rubric of privacy. So that is how it became a constitutional right issued by the federal Supreme Court. And after that, states could still pass laws regulating abortion, but they could not criminalize it. And in fact, in 1992, we had a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which mm. clarified the standard for whether an abortion regulation would be constitutional or not. And it said, states may not enact statutes which place a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion. And so that's the test that's that's in operation now. But so it's a kind of complicated um, matrix. We have a, a constitutional right from the federal constitution, which is then which covers the whole United States, and states can still regulate abortion, but they they can't deprive women. They can't put a substantial obstacle in their way. And for, an example of a substantial obstacle would be um, spousal consent. That that would fail under the constitutional right that was established in Roe. Why is abortion such a big issue in the United States? Why does it constantly come up in every single election? It's kind of a political obsession. Why is that? Okay, so this is one of the big questions I set for myself in my book, which is, why is everything in the United States about abortion? I mean, it comes up in everything. It comes up in entertainment. It comes up in every kind of political thing. It comes up in high school curricula. I mean, there's no, it's certainly Supreme Court nominations, but in places where you wouldn't expect to find it. That's chapter one of my book. And what I wanted to figure out was, why is so much in the U.S. about abortion? And my answer is that so much is about abortion because abortion can be about so many things. So, if you begin to sort of peel abortion into its component parts, um, it is a wonderful topic that can get people angry, no matter what they're angry about. So, for example, if you're if you believe there's too much teenage sex or teenage promiscuity, abortion is a good issue for you. If you believe in states' rights over federal federal rights, this is a good issue for you. If you think there's too much judicial activism, that is judges making law rather than legislatives, 
this is a good issue going back to Roe v. Wade. And I think very fundamentally, if you think women are have too much power, that women have either too much power in the marketplace or in the job market or with controlling their own lives, abortion is really the key issue. And that's why it's such an important issue for women. Because if you cannot control your reproduction, if you cannot control how many children you have or who you have them with or when in your life you have them, then you're really you have really lost a great deal of your liberty as a as a person. Mm-hmm. And so this sort of implicates the human rights aspect of abortion. That's why so much is about abortion, because you can mold it into being the object of whatever concerns you. You can project it onto the topic of abortion. So you did just refer to this as a human rights issue. And I'm wondering, do we think about this as a human right or as a women's right? And does it make any kind of difference? So this is a very interesting question. You know, what is it a right and what kind of right is it? Or should it be a right? And if so, what kind? And in the U.S., abortion became a right in our 1973 case of Roe v. Wade. That was the first time abortion had been established at the federal level as a right that is something the state can't take away from you. Mm-hmm. And that you're entitled to as part of your due as a, as a, as a member of the society. So the benefits of having something be a right is that it is protected. You can't be denied that right, although there are many ways that the state can be can make it very difficult for you to exercise the right. So, for example, in the U.S., there's no right to have an abortion paid for, mm. and um, that's a very significant limitation on the right. And a number of Supreme Court decisions have said, no, no, you have the right, but your financial status, that was not a creation of the state. That's your problem. And so we we offer you the right, but we certainly don't have any obligation to pay for it. Going back, that's a good a good thing about a right is that it's it's a vested right. You have it. So after Roe v. Wade was decided, states began to figure to think about how can we cut back on this right? And one of the ways they tried was to give fathers um, the right before an abortion could be performed. There had to be consent from both the woman and from the man. And the Supreme Court said no. In Roe v. Wade, we said this is a decision between a woman and her doctor. Mm-hmm. And although we realize a the biological father has uh, may have, have interests in the child, emotional interests and so on, has made a genetic contribution. We can only have one person deciding this, and because the impact is so much greater on a woman and her body and her life in terms of child-rearing, it has to be the woman. So that's, that's one way that fathers have been um, implicated. But from a advocacy point of view, I've been thinking that it would be useful, perhaps, to consider abortion um, for purposes of explaining to people who don't understand how much is at stake for a woman in this decision, it would be nice to present it in a gender-neutral way. And I think gender-neutral is pretty hard when you're talking about pregnancy. But I began to think, is there any instance when men have control over an embryo or a fetus? And it turns out that there are several. But the one that might be most useful here is we have in the U.S. cases involving frozen embryos Mm. and their disposition. And so I have a chapter where I talk about what do men do when 
uh, and these frozen embryos are created during a marriage when people are using artificial reproductive technologies to to get pregnant and then the marriage breaks up and often there are excess or extra um, surplus embryos and that decision has to be made what should be done with them and I looked at um, all the cases we have where men had said I do not want them implanted in my ex-wife I want them and or in, in, in a stranger I want them destroyed they usually prevail because just as Roe v. Wade says no woman can force be forced to become a mother without her consent the analogy would be nor should a man have to become a father in these frozen embryo cases but what really interested me about the cases was not the law but the reasons men gave as to why they didn't want to have this extra child born and they were very interesting they were things like I have enough children already or I don't want to be tied for the rest of my life to that woman or I'm working really hard right now and I don't feel I could be a very good father now, these are reasons that parallel greatly the reasons women give for why they are choosing to terminate a pregnancy. And so I, I'm hoping there's some persuasive power to thinking about this as a, a decision about whether or not to become a parent. Really for, not I wouldn't say political, but so that those who, who in the main do not face decisions about unwanted pregnancies can get a glimmer of what's at stake. So that's the that goes back to where are men in this. I, I don't think men have a legal right, and under our system they don't. But I think there's quite a lot to be gained by men thinking about, through whatever means we can, like by analogy, to what it means for a woman who's going to have involuntary motherhood, just like men resist involuntary fatherhood. You've written before that the entire legal framework around abortion functions to shame women or at least it has that effect. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Well, I think that, uh, that's an excellent question because that, that goes to the heart of one of the arguments um, I make in the book. And I think it's really key to how we talk about abortion and how women have to live with the way things are now. We have something in the U.S. called mandatory ultrasound statutes. And these are statutes that require women as part of the informed consent procedure to undergo an ultrasound that's okay. Many doctors perform an ultrasound before an abortion anyway to, to locate and date the pregnancy. Um, but the doctor must then ask them if, if they would like to look at the image of their unborn child and to use that language. And in some states, um, the scripts that doctors have to read out are even more detailed. Some states require doctors to point out any identifiable body part or organ. And these are meant to supposedly meant to point out to women, do you understand this is a real baby that you're about to kill? And those are enacted with the view that, what, women don't know what an abortion does? So my view is that women do understand what an abortion does, and they've made a serious decision. They've taken the decision carefully um, that this is not the right time for them to have a child or another child. In the U.S., two-thirds of the women who have abortions already are mothers. So they know what they know what's at stake in having another child. So this is a this is a good example of of how I think this really has nothing to do with informing women. I think it has something to do with punishing women. It's as though the state is saying, "Okay, Roe v. Wade says we can't prevent you from having 
an abortion, but we can sure make you pay for it. And how we're going to make you pay for it is, one, literally, we're not going to provide any money, and two, we're going to make you pay emotionally. And so we want you to see right on the screen that this is your baby. And that, in turn, creates a kind of shame, like it, 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 it's an impactful thing to do. And it doesn't change from the studies that have been done, uh, which aren't many, but it doesn't seem to change anybody's opinion. It just makes them pay a price for making, for making the decision. They're, the state is telling them through the laws, what you're doing is wrong. We can't stop you, but we can, we can, we can point out to you the many ways that this is a, a, a wicked thing to do. The result of all that is that women, at least in the U.S., tend not to talk about abortion at the level of individual experience. They don't, mothers don't tell their daughters they ever had an abortion. Daughters don't always tell their parents. Um, wives sometimes don't tell their husbands. People just don't talk about it in the U.S. And the argument that I've made is that this is very bad. This lack of conversation, even at quiet levels among intimates, has an impact on how we publicly talk about abortion. People think they don't know anybody who ever had an abortion, and they probably do, since as we know, one in three women will have had an abortion by the end of their reproductive years. And so the absence of sort of normalizing this as a medical decision women choose is, is destructive to how we think about it, of how we think about regulating it, and um, sort of gives pro-life people the, uh, the narrative. They get to say what kind of women have abortions, how badly they feel, how they regret it. And this doesn't comport with um, the experience of many women Although you have to dig deep for that evidence because women who have had abortions won't talk about it. Hmm. And what makes having an open conversation about abortion so important? If anybody can say anything they want about abortion and they think they don't know anybody and that they, they mostly being men, have the inside scoop on how women feel, then it's really important that women talk. And I'm not saying it's an easy thing to talk about. Um, I don't know if you know the name Lindy West. Okay, so she started a movement. She's a journalist. I think she writes for The Guardian. And she started a movement called Shout Your Abortion. And what she wants people to do is to say out loud, I had an abortion and uh, to other people. And I'm not a shouter myself, but I believe in quiet conversation, and I think that that's a first, you know, a good start. There are also some, um, this is how we learn to open up a conversation. There are some online sites, like we have one in the U.S. called Exhale, where they say we're not pro-life nor pro-choice, we're pro-voice. Mm. And you can go on and anonymously discuss how you feel about having had an abortion. Mm. It's a way of getting people used to the idea that if you were to tell someone you trusted about an abortion, they might still be your friend. They might still be your loving mother. And, and I think that's, right now, there's a kind of um, terror about it. And I will take, it will take a while to have this happen. And here I think uh, vocabulary has something to do with it, too. I mean, the word abortion in the U.S. is so demonized. One of the reasons I call my book about abortion, and there's a colon, and then it's called Terminating Pregnancy in 21st Century America, is because, and someone asked me, 
Why does your book have both abortion and terminating pregnancy? Aren't they the same thing? Isn't that like redundant? And my answer is it's really not redundant because abortion has so many connotations of um, of bad, evil, immoral, selfish. That's an important one. And terminating a pregnancy relocates the nature of the decision from the fetus, which is implicated quickly when you hear abortion, uh, to the woman herself. She's seeking to restore her life. And um, we do that by terminating a pregnancy. So to kind of wrap things up, um, what is one thing you wish people knew about abortion after working on your book and spending so much time with this topic? What a very nice question that is. Um, well, I'll say two things, all right? One is that they probably do know somebody who they really care about and like or love who's had an abortion. And I'd like them to think about whether or not if they knew that this person had an abortion, they would actually feel differently about them or whether they would engage them in a conversation, you know, or that's an important piece of the sort of um, social movement about thinking about what does, what is this procedure. Um, the other thing that I think is really important, and this is one of the reasons I wrote the book, if women in the U.S. who terminate unwanted pregnancies, and if I could just put a footnote here, the difference between a wanted and unwanted pregnancy is a very fluid line. Wanted pregnancies can become unwanted very quickly if um, the boyfriend runs out, if the woman loses her job, if she gets a prenatal diagnosis that's um, of, of a serious fetal anomaly. So the line between wanted and unwanted is, a, is, is not a fixed line at all, even within the same pregnancy. Um, but to return to what I was saying, um, if women who terminate unwanted pregnancies feel bad, or ashamed, or guilty, or reticent to talk to anybody about it, one thing I think they would learn from the book is there is an entire legal structure in place designed to bring about that very result. So there's, I think it's important for women to see this is not necessarily a natural feeling, but it's one that we've been acculturated into. The law is meant to make people, and not just women who have abortions, but everyone else, think that something bad is going on. And I think um, realizing that, that there's this structure in place to make abortion seem semi-criminal um, is a useful thing and might be freeing to be able to figure out how you really think about what your decision was. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Carol. It was really my pleasure. Thank you for these interesting questions. Rights Up Right Now is a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. Subscribe or follow us on iTunes or SoundCloud.